Hey everyone, this episode of the Second Pine Podcast is brought to you by It's Just Soap. Many store-bought body washes and soap bars are made with toxic ingredients that are harmful to your skin. Soap should be healthy for your body, leaving you feeling clean, hydrated, and moisturized. It's Just Soap is made of natural ingredients, giving you a luxurious lather for the best shower experience. Every shower should feel this good. Go to itsjustsoap.com. That's itsjustsoap.com. Leave off that A for additives. And use the code STAYHOMEHUSBAND for 15% off your first purchase. Before we jump into the podcast, we just want to ask you for a bit of help as we try to extend our reach. The easiest step is to simply subscribe or follow the second pint on whatever podcatcher you prefer. Apple, Spotify, Overcast, Google Podcasts. We're on all of them. A rating and review would take an extra minute, but would help even more. Finally, if you have a second pint drinking, scarf wearing, singing, wake up early to watch weekend soccer friend, tell them to check out this podcast too. Welcome to the second pint podcast. I'm Sean Mealy. I've got Both on the other line and we are doing something a little bit different for the next Oh, I don't know, eight, nine, ten episodes. Boff, welcome back. Yeah, I I almost <laughs> expected you to say buongiorno. But I, I thought about it. <laughs> we're, we're sophisticated Europeans now. We we, we we speak all languages. Yeah, I was trying to think, like, what do I say for the... Uh, I'm just going to say welcome back. It's been a while. We took a little hiatus um, after after touring Italy and visiting ten clubs there. And a lot's gone on in the world of soccer since we talked as well. <laughs> yeah. Oh man. Um, I, yeah. I think it's so fitting that we're we're moving to um, what would you call this? A different chapter or a different uh, different? I don't know. Hairdo of our podcast. Yeah. This is like the Beckham Fohawk edition. Beckham Fohawk. I was gonna say like like the 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 Pogba dyed hair. Which week? I was going to say, which minute or which hour? <laughs> yeah, so um, we've been focusing on on clubs, and now we're going to turn our attention because we are just about a month away from the the Euros and talk about what's going on in, uh, in European soccer and give a little bit of a recap of the European Championships. Or the Euros, or the European na- Euro nations—all sorts of different names. Um, so the way this season is going to work, the way this haircut is going to work, is this podcast. We are going to talk about the first five um, Euros, which started in 1960. So last year was supposed to be the 60th anniversary of of this event. Um, 1960, 64. 68, 72, and 76. So we're going to cover those five tournaments in um, in pretty quick order. Um, they were small events, very small tournaments, pretty short tournaments. And then going forward from there, we will spend a little time on each podcast talking about 1980, and then we'll do another podcast on 84, 88, 92, and, and kind of work our way up to, to present day and, and do as many of these as we can before the tournament kicks off on uh, on June 11th. So that's that's kind of what we're doing. I, I do have to say, Both, I felt a little bit validated during the Super League stuff um, that we had spent really the last like year and change 
looking at clubs that were really not super league type clubs and learning about the the lower levels and it I think it it changed my reaction to the super league um I was I think I would have been upset anyways but I felt like I had a, an attachment to some of these clubs that were just being left in the dust yeah I I agree I think um I think you can kind of hear in our in both of our voices uh the the beauty of of um of the sport, soccer, football, uh, at lower levels, how it's very much a part of your everyday life that, you know, um, it, without the fans, without that culture and uh, providing the, the subtext, um, to all those games, it, it just doesn't feel right. So it was cool to, um, you know, to give a highlight to some of the clubs that, that are just truly built by the fans and then look at, you know, a perversion of that, um, at the super league. Yeah. Um, yeah. So just quickly, I, I got to share that some, you know, some clown kids at school um, that, that I teach at and I work at were like, coach, coach, the Super League's going to be crazy. I'm like, if you say that again, I, I'll give you a bad grade. I don't teach it, but I'll give you a bad grade. I'll make sure you Yeah. So, it, but it, it shows that like there's, there's a lot of beauty and a lot of, um, depth to, to knowing where a club comes from. And, and when you have that in your head, you know, you, you can see how super league could be just a nightmare. Yep. Yeah. I was thinking about just the 2021 snapshot of a super league versus if it was something that was done in the, in the sixties and the clubs that would have been involved that are, you know, maybe now in the first division of English football or, you know, would Nottingham Forest and Derby been part of a super league in the, in the sixties, if they did something like that, you know, um, leads. So anyways, definitely felt a little bit validated just having spent some time learning about those clubs and, and trying to bring some attention to them and, uh, and, and talking about their fans and their traditions and, and uh, how they've been built. And I think, you know, we also talked a little bit about the foreign money that came in and we joke about it, but, <laughs> That was some somewhat the death the death knell of of the Super League um, or the idea was uh, was a lot of foreign money. Anyways, let's talk about international soccer. Yes, first uh, yeah, time on the pod. First time, first time talking international international soccer, and we are going to talk about the Euros. And um, so we we're going to do these first five, and we kind of. Both we traded off jobs, so I took the 1960 event. Then you took 64. I've got 68. You've got 72, and then I've got 76. So we can kind of just run through these, give some peep, give everyone kind of a sense of where this tournament started. Um, I honestly didn't really know much about how it started, and just the kind of the scope of the tournament, the teams that were really involved in the, especially in those 60, 64, 68. Um, events, teams that didn't just nations that decided not to play. Um, but just to give a quick look at just the history overall. So there's been 15 European championship tournaments and 10 nations have won them. Germany and Spain have three titles. France has won it twice. And then the Soviet Union, Italy, Czechoslovakia, the Netherlands, Denmark, Greece, and Portugal have each won one title. Um, Spain is the only country to have won it consecutively when they won in 2008 and 2012. Um, it is the second most watched football tournament in the world after the World Cup. 
And the Euro 2012 final was watched by a global audience of 300 million people. So just to give, this is a, this is no small potatoes of, of an event. It's sometimes I like it more than the World Cup. I'll be honest. Mm. Um, maybe that's my uh, Euro centric view on things, but I think the, I think the soccer is a little bit better just because it's a little bit more concentrated, smaller event. Um, but anyways, 1960. The event was not called the European Championship or the Euros. Uh, it started off as the European Nations Cup. Um, it was an idea that was kind of first brought by a man named Henry Dulanet in 1927. So about 33 years before they actually had the event. Um, and it was not until 1958 that the tournament was actually started, um, three years after Delaney's death. And in honor of uh, Delaney, um, the trophy awarded to the champion is named after him. So this was an idea that was concocted by uh, the French Football Federation Secretary General, um, Henry Delaney, in 1927. Um, and it took about, man, 30 years for it to, to take hold. Um, the way these tournaments worked at the start was very different. There were only four teams that actually made it through to the final. Um, and I know you've got the 64 one, which is the same. And I think it, it expands a little bit later. Uh, but basically the way it worked was there were 16 teams that started the event and they played home and home in the rounds of 16 and in the quarterfinals. So they were just traveling to each other's country, playing a home and home, and the aggregate winner would move on to the next round. And once they got down from eight to four, those four teams would um, go to a host country. There was no host country until those four teams were figured out. Um, so it was basically just we'll play the last three games, this two or the last four games, two semifinals a final and a third place match in whichever country is willing to host. Um, and that host was, I think at every time was a, um, was one of the semifinalists. So 1960, Italy, West Germany, and England all say, thanks, but no thanks. We are not going to play. Um, Spain refused to travel to the Soviet Union for political reasons. Um, basically kind of a fascism versus communism battle. Spain was ruled by uh, by Franco, um, maybe up until the seventies. So, kind of a dictatorship, authoritarian regime um, that many many would call fascist. And obviously, the Soviet Union being a, a communist country, Spain refused to just step foot in the Soviet Union. Um, they offered a one leg one legged neutral site game, um, and the Soviets said no. So Spain was disqualified. So um, that's how the Soviets ended up in the final. I think they were in the final four. Yes, they were. So the final four for this first year in 1960 was France, who became the hosts. And Paris and Marseille were the host cities for the for the matches. Yugoslavia, the Soviet Union and Czechoslovakia. So we've got some. Uh, Communist countries, a lot of politics kind of bleeding into football. Spain not wanting to play the Soviet Union um, and Yugoslavia, the Soviet Union, Czechoslovakia, all traveling to Paris. Um, 
was kind of a big deal. And the other thing that kind of just stood out to me about this particular, you know, first event was the fact that the star of the show was a goalie. And this goalie is a guy I'd never had. You ever heard of a Lev Yashin before, Both? No. No, neither. Yeah. I mean, I have to be honest, a lot of the players that that showed up kind of in my reading for these first couple events. I am I you know, we have not dug deep on the uh, Yugoslavian, Soviet Union, Czechoslovakian teams of the 1960s. We're just not there yet. <laughs> but um, Lev Lev Yashin, who is known as the Impregnable Spider. What a phenomenal nickname. Um, basically steals the show. He is the only goalkeeper ever to win the uh, Ballon d'Or um, and just kind of a, a stud goalkeeper who was way ahead of his time. Um, just a fantastic, fantastic goalie. And he ends up um, basically kind of single-handedly winning winning the event. Um, the Soviet Union beats Yugoslavia in the final 2-1 after um, they beat, let's see here, the Soviets... Soviet Union beat Czechoslovakia 3-0. Yugoslavia beat France 5-4 in a game that is kind of renowned as a... It's the highest scoring game ever in in the Euros um, at at any point in the tournament. So nine goals total. And France actually led 4-2 and gave up three goals uh, in real quick succession. Um, in the fifth, in the 75th, the 78th and the 79th minute, um, they gave up, they gave up their last three goals to lose, uh, five, four at home, uh, which was a, a kind of a devastating loss for the French in that first, in that first Euro. So that's, it's kind of the big, the big pieces here. Cult of Calcio, uh, Calcio has a, dot com has a, has kind of a long piece on it. Um, but really Lev Yashin was, was the star, the, I just, the kind of political undertones of the event. Um, I thought it was interesting and it's interesting that just, we've got these four teams that qualify and everything else was home and home when I would imagine travel obviously was harder than it is now. You would have thought it would have been more likely that they just have 16 teams show up in a place and, and play some matches. Um, but that's, that's kind of what I've got for 1960. Uh, the champ, once again, was uh, the Soviet Union and, uh, and, their, and their goalie, the impregnable spider. Nice. Um, a couple of things before I pop into 64. Do you know anything about this, this dude? Um, and I'm, I'm going to pronounce this uh, just like an Arsenal fan. Henri, <laughs> Henri Delaney. Um, do you like kind of just peek into his like who he was for a second? I didn't. Are you, or did you do it just now? No, I, I actually, I actually just kind of just because I was, I was at like a existential philosophical kind of uh, like gum on shoe moment. I'm like, why did why did the Euros start in the first place? Um, so I was kind of doing a little bit of like, nerd reading uh, before this. Anyway. This dude um, was playing was playing for a team and then became a referee. He retired from being a referee after an incident um, in which he swallowed his whistle and broke two teeth on being struck in the face with a ball. Oh. 
So uh, this must have happened sometime in like the 1800s because he became he became an, an admin, you know, for football in 1905. I'm thinking about like just a, the kind of ball I was kicking around in the 1800s. Oh, man. Yeah. Um, but anyway, um, yeah, like really quickly, I, I, I think the significance of why the Euro started is, is really cool to, to just look at um, for a second. Um, if you look at the early years of the World Cup, you can see that it's definitely dominated by um, a lot of a lot of uh, South American teams, or mm. at least maybe dom- dominated to the point where they were feeling like I don't know how how I like this. So the timing the timing of it all looks looks um, pretty interesting. So you got the '30s, the first World Cup, Uruguay, Argentina, and then you've got two. You've got four, or two World Cups with um, European powers. No World Cups because of the World War II, and then back in the fifties, you get you get more South American powers, and then leading up before the invention of the of the um, of the Euro tournament, you've got Brazil dominating this. And it says that Henri started this idea because, or in, in the twenties of nineteen twenty seven, because he wanted to create more competition so i think it's to your point sean about your european cups being maybe more entertaining than the world cup i think i think part of that is by design they they need each other to keep the powers in europe yeah so yeah i just wanted to highlight that really quickly before jumping in um 64 uh i took 64 kind of a um for a different spin, but definitely, um, definitely had some fun with this one. Uh, a little bit of kind of global commentary, social commentary, what's going on in that in that era. Um, we've got space travel. Uh, people are, are racing to the moon. Then, Beatlemania is uh, taking America. Um, you've got race riots and the Civil Rights Act. Um, and Sony has uh, has this new hot item called the VCR. <laughs> um coming out and um yeah so this you know all these things are are familiar to to most listeners on this pod um but for me you know being being my age this is this is kind of cool to to kind of set the scene um before jumping into europe and what, what this means around europe um i put a berlin wall vibes um in in my side notes here of a theme and thread um, because I, I just, I find it hard and maybe because the, the books I've read to separate politics and soccer, um, when, when you look at kind of the inspiration and, and the, the passion behind a team and, and why fans celebrate extra hard when a team, when a team loses or when a team wins. So, um, here that's kind of, uh, I forget the exact year the Berlin Wall goes up, but um, it actually is, is present enough where, where it's, it's uh, affecting some of the, the relations. It's affecting some of the way these powers, these European powers, um, interact, so to speak, with each other on a field. Um, anyway, Spain, 2-1, uh, beats the Soviet Union um, in, in the final. Like you said, the format is a really small format. Um, leading up to it, Spain is... 
playing against Hungary. They beat them 2-1 as well. Uh, it actually was the, the site of the first goal in, in that tournament. Um, opening goal is Jesus Maria Pereira, who I have no idea and <laughs> any research on. Uh, scored in the first 35 minutes um, in the Madrid semifinal. Uh, and, I mean, talk about, like, generic 60s um, wordsmithing here. He thanks his teammates for working well as a unit. <laughs> um, so pretty pretty cut and dry. Uh, that tournament had 86 goals in 29 matches. So, yes, the, the finals itself, the smaller format of, of teams, um, is only a semis and a final format. Um, but before that, you've got, I believe, 17 teams playing in playing to this tournament um, and, and, um, and fighting for glory. Uh, 89 goals and 29 matches is is up there with um, the best goal goal return ratios of, of these uh, five terms we're going to talk about. Um, that's big time. When, when you look at um, the, the players that played here and, and, and some of the stats here, you have, you have uh, Ole Madsen with seven goals in the tournament. Uh, Ferenic Bene five goals and Amancio Amaro four goals. That's that's a solid, solid amount of goals scored um, just in the uh, just in the uh, later rounds of the tournament. Oli Madsen is a guy that I, I actually did manage to pop in and, and see what what his story was all about. He is um he's pretty cool uh, actually. This guy is a, a short five seven dude. Uh, who played striker um, and has uh, has a pretty funny name or it's a pretty funny story. Um, fast striker, uh, great fighting spirit, and um, and had a, a knack of just kind of being a pest. Like he's the kind of guy that the defender just hated to play against. Small, quick, and annoying. He actually was very greedy and would rarely ever pass the ball to his teammates. So this guy was an absolute ball hog um, and did not do. <laughs> any any uh, any justice to, to the the team aspect of of, um, of the game? Uh, you know, I think it's kind of funny mentioning how Spain said, "Yeah, we played we played um, well, and our team, you know, worked together as a unit." This guy's stories is even weirder. The, the, read, the more you read on it, in it, he actually never played top flight in his entire career. So, uh, leading scorer of um, the Euro '64 is a guy who um, who you look at his appearances he uh, he has zero appearances at, at top flight um, here we go despite a low club uh, a low-key club career Madsen international performance of Denmark national team got the attention of European professional clubs as an amateur player he was a free agent able to sign with any professional club without the need for a transfer fee um, he was contacted by an Italian club at Atalanta Bergamo, but was hindered by a broken nose and subsequent hospitalization. He then um, was offered a contract by, by, by Barcelona to turn it down to stay with his amateur side. He just didn't want to play big teams. Uh, eventually, 65, so a year after his, his, big, his big tournament, um, he joined Dutch team Sparta Rotterdam, where he, where he played and, and was, was successful. But I, I think just looking at how international soccer and, and, and tournaments have changed in um, over the years. Now it's a, it's a place to kind of, you know, renegotiate your terms and, and put on a different price tag. Uh, before it was just kind of like a tournament of, of people who, who want to test their might or, or, or prove their abilities. Um, 
I'll leave Maxi five seven. And then the last thing I have here for my notes on on a very kind of just I'd say um, quiet tournament for sixty four is just like looking at the the highlights here of the video. Um, it's 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 definitely like how do I say this? It's so political. You look at it, you read it, and it's, it's so political. The the ball, the, the way the way the um like the the ball the, the way the ball hits the net, and and the way that the, the players and the fans uh, are, are celebrating. It's it's got it's got some storyline here, some backstory that I I gotta get into more of. Um, but the goals are, you know, this is this this. Uh, the quality of balling back in the 60s is not great. It's not much to talk about. Um, the highlights of the semifinals are kind of the same too. It's it's uh, for me, Sean. If I'm being honest, I'm not sure I'm thrilled about this tournament. <laughs> it's just it's just I was trying to wordsmith my way around this and be be a nice guy, but it's a dry tournament. Yeah, if, if you're not a a Spanish or you know Soviet Soviet Union person, but. Yeah, I'll imagine though is definitely worth looking into because it's it's a it's a pretty cool story. I don't I don't think we'll have more more of that as we move through the years. The um, I think that's why we decided these first five were worth one podcast. Just they're 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 brief and they're uh, and they there there's not a ton in what I read too that just kind of stands out. There's some interesting little anecdotes and stories. Um, did you read or see anything that talked about the fact that Spain refused to play the Soviet Union four years prior? Was there any? I did not see that, but I, but that's that's an interesting point to bring up um, after after reading that. Um, you know, this tournament was actually uh, had the most fans, um, one hundred twenty five thousand fans at one game. Um, so. You know, that's that's got to be for me the the biggest thing, the biggest commentary on on maybe why Spain almost didn't want to play the, the the match. Yeah, and I looked up the Berlin Wall. It was built in 1961, or at least yeah. it was kind of finished. So between the 60 tournament and the 64 tournament, the Berlin Wall was built, and um, obviously kind of changes the the scope of Europe and. Um, and, and Eastern Europe and, and Russia, so or the Soviet Union. Um, one thing I forgot to mention, extraordinarily important for the 1960 event before I talk about 68, is the first goal ever scored in the European Championships was scored by an Irishman. Just nice. wanted to make sure uh, I, I got that in there because I had noted it and just forgot. Um, Liam Tohohi, um, or Tui, um, scored when his team beat Czechoslovakia 2-0 in Dublin on April 5th, 1959. Um, they did not go any further. Liam, to- Liam Tohey was a... He was working in the Guinness Brewery at the time and was playing part-time football for Shamrock Rovers. Just to... Wow. <laughs> so, there you go. The first man to score a goal in this illustrious tournament uh, was working at a Guinness factory. <laughs> wow. Um Surprised there's no like cross, there's there's no uh, like promotion of that. That would be kind of an interesting thing for Guinness to do. Maybe if their team was any good and they could get back in the godforsaken tournament. Um, 1968. We 
really the big thing for me in this one was qualifying changed. So we went from home and home matches between 16 teams to 31 countries entering. So, we, you know, after after two events, even though you and I were kind of nonplussed by them both, uh, countries were, were getting involved and wanting to participate and play in this. So 31 teams and they were broken into groups of four. Um, there was one group of three. So in all, there were eight groups for the group stage. So this is kind of the first time in Europe we see groups um, being put together. And the way they built it was you played in your group for two years and the winner of each group went to the quarterfinals. So you'd have eight quarterfinalists. That was a home and home. And then we had, once again, our four semifinalists um, going to a, um, a country and playing those last those last few matches. In this case, we have Italy hosting, and the final four were Italy, Yugoslavia, England, and the Soviet Union. Uh, England is obviously the World Cup champ, um, and they end up finishing in third place. Italy beats Yugoslavia in the final. Um, the Soviet Union lost to Italy in the semifinal on a coin toss. I'll say that again. <laughs> Italy beat the Soviet Union in the semifinal of a major sporting event after a 0-0 tie on a coin toss. Um, Italy goes through to the final, plays Yugoslavia. Yugoslavia and Italy play to a draw in the first in the first match of the final and end up actually playing a replay. So this was a time in life when the game, if it was a tie, they did not just keep playing. They did not go to penalty kicks. They played an extra 30 minutes and no goals were scored. So they said, let's come back in two days and play a whole new game again. Um, and on June 10th, this in the replay in Rome, Italy beats Yugoslavia two nothing. Um, the only time a match in this event was decided by a coin toss because they realized that was that's a ridiculous thing to do. Um, and those are kind of my big points. Italy. This is the only time Italy has ever won this event, which is um, surprising. I think, considering they've won a few World Cups in that period of time. Uh, the, the thing that was interesting to me about the 68 Italian team was they were at an all-time low in the, in the 66 World Cup. They lost to North Korea and were pelted by the fans with tomatoes as they walked off the field. Um, it was kind of a low point in Italian football, and in uh, in two years' time, they they turned it around and won. Uh, some of our you know close friends like Gigi Riva were on this team. Um, both this Italian squad went on afterwards to play in the '70 World Cup um, final and lose to Brazil. So this was a this was now like '68 to me started to feel like oh okay it's it's got a little bit more of a shape to it um 
Italy and England are in the semifinals. The teams involved just feel like they might have a little bit more um, cachet. Everyone's playing now. The field almost doubled. Um, so I think you could probably turn to 68. They also changed the name. It's now called the Euros. So it's the you know Euro 68, um, the group stage. So in my mind, like 60 and 64 were the, t- the testing ground, just trying to figure a lot of stuff out. And the last piece of information I have from this, which I, uh, I thought was hilarious and probably a good way to end, was a story about um, Alan Mullery, who was given a red card during their a semifinal loss to Yugoslavia. So this is Alan Mullery's English. So I'll just read a little a little piece from uh, World Football Index that I uh, that I found. Quote, the semifinal against Yugoslavia is most memorable for Alan Mullery becoming the first player ever to be sent off while playing for England. In a roughhouse encounter, a 1-0 loss to Yugoslavia, Mullery retaliated to a bad tackle from D- uh, Dombrivo Trivich by giving him a good kick in the conkers. <laughs> Mullery explained the story. He said, The back of my sock was red, the blood was pouring out, and my heart was beating really fast. In sheer anger, I turned around and kicked him in the Hauser Fathers, and down he went like a sack of spuds. <laughs> and Mullery was kicked out of the game. Uh, couldn't play again. And he is kind of... He, he'll pop up every now and then. I, I was reading another little bit. He was he kind of hasn't lived this whole thing down. Um, I mean, just kicking a guy right in the right in the balls during a, a football match. Um, we've seen it before. We'll see it again. But he might have been the first to at least have it, you know, captured and and uh, in a, in a yeah. major event. So someone for England in the oh, who was it? I can't remember now who the player was in like the late 90s was kicked out of a game for a really bad tackle. And uh, Mullery was said he was, his grandson came into the room with the newspaper the next day and gave it to him and said, Grandpa, you're on the front of the newspaper. And they had a whole list of all the English players who had been kicked out of games for red cards um, because the English just don't forget. (laughs) It wasn't Beckham. It was someone earlier than Beckham um, who got kicked out of a game. Uh, But I thought that was funny and uh, just... Some great language in there. Conkers, how's your father's sack of spuds? Um, so that's the 68. Italy wins in Italy. So the hosts are champs and uh, really starts to feel a little bit like an event that uh, that people want to that countries want to play in and, and countries want to win. And I think 72 and 76 kind of back that up. Yeah. Cool. I think you're right. I think I think uh, when you said '68 uh, was kind of that moment where um, it took shape, I was thinking of uh, like the moment when like babies become cute. Um, like <laughs> when they're first born. I'm, and I'm so sorry to any listener that's like like a baby person. Um, but when they're first born, it's just kind of just like this like blob of flesh that you know you, you're almost obliged to say it was cute. It is cute. Um, but in the 68, when it becomes like a, an actual, like kind of, uh, baby that kind of laughs and blinks and all that, you're like, oh, wow. Yeah. I, I see, I see character now. Um, I, that's kind of what I thought of when you were talking about 68 being that moment where the light, the light bulb is beginning to kind of flicker. 
So, so 60 and 64 are the uh, the smushed face baby years of the Euros. I, I apologize to any listener. That's, that's great. The baby first. I'm so sorry. It's just, it's just not my thing. Yeah. Um, but well, yeah. It's, yeah, it's growing up. It was, it was born. It was, you know, not a lot to it. And then it starts to develop and turn into a person. Right, exactly. Um, which, side note, I, I do have a story about the uh, 60... Uh, Euro Cup that I'll tell after this after this series here is pretty cool. Um, end to the to the pod. Um, yeah, so uh, I actually had a, a lot more fun with seventy two um, seventy two as as my as my focus for for this part of the pod. Um, I put in, in the notes. It's um, for, I'm going to kind of call this the uh, golden years for for Germany West Germany. Um, in context. Uh, German writer Heinrich Boll wins Nobel Peace Prize, um, so it, there's a lot of a lot of good stuff going on in um, in Germany in that moment. It's kind of like like I wouldn't say a renaissance, that's an Italian word, but whatever that 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 word might be. Um, you've got Germany winning uh, the 72 Euros, and then two years later they're going to go on to win the World Cup. Um, West Germany beats. The Soviet Union three nil in um, in, uh, in in this tournament, and and it's their first time as European champions. Um, it kind of it kind of again kickstart this this really cool uh, span of dominance over over three tournaments. They end up losing, as you'll talk about um, in '76, but they they were just a hot ticket team um, in that in that tournament there. Um, it was known as a tournament where we, we were first introduced to uh, Der Kaiser, um, which uh, there's no way we haven't mentioned, um, you know, this this uh, German team before on podcasts. And so somehow how the crossroads of soccer, you know, just pick out crazy different names. But, um, yeah, uh, Sean, what, what do you know about this Legendary Kaiser, Der Kaiser. Sorry, are are you talking about Beckenbauer? Yeah, like like it's just like if 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 I if I asked you in five words, what would you say, Beckenbauer? Oh man, I mean five five words, just no sentence, just like bullet point. Yeah, words. longevity, uh, soccer royalty, uh, a. Um, trying to think of like the the ahead of his time, mm-hmm. and I uh, you know like it, for hockey people I would he's like a Bobby Orr, right? A guy who kind of played in the back but played it differently than anyone else had ever really played the position. Yeah, yeah. Um, that's more than five words, but that's I honestly don't know a ton about him. I just know he's been around forever and. And um, and it was a phenomenal soccer player. Maybe a little bit of a Bobby Moore kind of career. Yep. Yeah. No. This this just really quickly. Um, Beckenbauer. Um, Beckenbauer. Franz Beckenbauer is. Um, he's just a, a legend that isn't talked about enough. Uh, for whatever reason, the the world focus is on on um, other countries when it comes to. Um, pantheon-like talent um and and i just feel like maybe and maybe this is just my upbringing or maybe this is just my 
my my own bias um, as a fan, but um, I just don't hear enough about Beckenbauer being this this legendary person on the field, and, and he very much is. Um, two words that don't normally go together um, until later on in, in our modern day ball, but uh, he was known as being a stylish defender. He played with mm. Grayson from the uh, from the back and won a ton of trophies. So yeah, he he won like I said before the seventy two Euros, the seventy four Euros. Um, and he also led um, Bayern Munich to three successive uh, European Cups, now known as Champions League, and four German League titles before leaving in 77. So, again, um, underlining and putting it in bold and starring it, the 70s was, was um, early 70s was, was big time for, for Germany in terms of football uh, and soccer. Um, this guy is an, a natural leader, and, and he goes on to, to become you know, the face of of German club soccer by Munich later on in his career. Um, but it's, it's a, it's a legendary team. Um, and looking at some of their, you know, some of their, their performances in that, in that tournament itself, um, the, the tournament in numbers, uh, it's a lot less goals scored. It's 29 goals scored in 13 matches. So there's a significant drop in, um, in competitions as well as, as well as, um, uh, kind of the content of, of, the, of each game. Um, in the semis, you've got uh, the Soviet Union beating Hungary on one side of the bracket. On the other side, um, West Germany uh, beats Belgium. Um, and then again, in the final, it's 3-0. Um, it's, uh, this, for me, was the first final where I, I watched it and I, I, I saw some things that kind of resembled what I would call I don't know, like something watchable. Um, <laughs> just like it, it's, but like looking at the, at the, you know, it's, it's color, it's in color. Um, looking at all the, the officials standing around the, the track. Um, but it's fast, like, and it, and the, the ball's moving. There's, there's volleys, there's headers. It's, it's the, it, yeah, I mean, these dudes are crushing the ball. Um, and so, I, I think maybe the the fan in me is, is seeing a, a pace that is just it's just more more watchable. You're seeing um, a, a blend of technique now. You're seeing the, the the way the ball is moving and being hit on on the, on the pitch. You know, there's outside the foot, inside the foot. There's chest traps. It's just it's just a, a significant increase in talent. And I, I don't I didn't put too much uh, focus on the '68 World Cups or '68 um, Euro. So maybe there's some talent there, but we're we're seeing some different kind of quality here and that's that's where i think i'll say yeah there's a further development of not only the tournament but also just just the the scene of uh, of soccer in that moment mm. well i think we're in yeah. the we're in the time of pele right cruyff is on the scene as well he sh- i think he showed up first in the in the 64 maybe the 68 um but he makes an appearance for the first time. And so there's a, you know, the, there is a different, there's definitely a different scale. I'd say you could probably draw the line at the 66 world cup, mm-hmm. maybe the 62 world cup, but it just, it feels like that's really when, when soccer takes a, a turn right. um, as far as a skill and just the, the, the players involved and the, and maybe a little bit of tactics as well for sure. Anything else on 72? Um, let's see. 
Oh, um, I just I just wanted to ask a, a, a question again that maybe fans can come back to later on. But after after Germany fell off fell off their their hot seat um, in '76, they they kind of went through a period where they underachieved a little bit until until the '80s. And um, you know, looking at now and how how history repeats itself, I'm, I'm wondering if if now Germany again is in a similar um, position where they're a, a little bit lost in identity and a little bit lost in, in kind of where, where they want to go. Joachim um, uh, Lowe, uh, Love is stepping down and, and it's kind of now a lot of questions um, revolving what's what's next for Germany. So right here, shameless plug, go please read Das Reboot. Um, it's about how German soccer restructured um, everything about its, its uh, identity and approach after just years and years of, uh, of falling short. Um, pretty cool read, and, and it could give you a little bit of a, of a scope into what might have been gone, going on before and after the golden years of, of this West Germany team. Yeah, because they, I mean, they, they, made an, they made appearances again in like the late 80s, early 90s, mm-hmm. and then kind of disappeared again. So they, they definitely work in cycles. Yeah, yeah. For sure. That's interesting. Um, and then 76, speaking of, a, of you know, West German cycles, I think another bit of growth for the, for the event and maybe even just for um, the interest in soccer in general and the buildup to events like this is it really, this one felt to me like the first tournament that had some expectations tied to it as far as who could qualify for the semifinals, who might win. Um, There was definitely a lot of buzz because in 74 in the World Cup, West Germany beat the Netherlands, um, which was, you know, we talked about Cruyff and and that kind of total football uh, team that I think a lot of people thought should have won a lot more than they did. Um, they didn't really, they didn't win anything in the seventies and it took until 88 for them to win a European championship. But this 76, the expectation was that the Dutch and the West Germans would face each other again in the, in the finals. That was, that was the hope people wanted to see it. And just like a good Euro, it didn't happen because some random team comes along and, and surprises uh, a bunch of a bunch of countries and ends up winning the event and and uh, ruining people's hopes and dreams of a of a great final or at least of a great final involving the teams that they hoped made it. So Czechoslovakia ends up winning this event. Um, Yugoslavia is the host. Um, Czechoslovakia plays West Germany in the final, uh, and then the Netherlands and Yugoslavia are the other two teams. Who uh, who make that semifinal group? Um, all four matches that were involved here went to extra time. So the two semifinals, the final, and the um, third fourth place match all went to extra time. So it it was it's kind of considered the most competitive um, tournament as far as just the closeness of the matches, especially you know the ones at the end. Um, the only match that was decided by penalty kicks, though, was the final, which I will talk about um, kind of towards the end. Um, you know, West Germany had come in. They were the 74 Euro champs and the 76 World Cup champs. 
Uh, so they were kind of a, they were expected to kind of win and make their way to the final. And then Czechoslovakia is the other team that made the final and they went through a pretty impressive gauntlet to get to where they, to get to the championship and then ending, ending up winning it. So they were drawn with England in their group. Um, so just a reminder to folks, the, the tournament was organized with, uh, groups of four, the winner of that group went into the quarterfinal where they play a home and home. So Czechoslovakia had England in their group. It didn't really seem like they were even going to get out of their group. They end up getting out of their group, uh, leaving England behind. Then they draw the Soviet Union for their quarterfinal and they defeat the Soviet Union in a home and home. And then they get the Netherlands in the semifinals and everyone thinks this is great. We're going to get a Netherlands West Germany final and Czechoslovakia um, beats the Netherlands three nothing. I believe was the was the score. Let me double check that now as I'm saying it. I'm not entirely sure, but I think it was three nothing. Um, three one. Three one, and the that's right. It was three one, and the only goal the he the Dutch scored was I think an own goal. Um, so just a, I guess it was a, a horrible rainy match. Um, just a de- it rained all day, uh, rained all the night before. So the the Dutch just couldn't play their kind of smooth, silky football. Um, before the match, Johan Cruyff had basically announced he would not be traveling to the World Cup with this this Nether- who with his Netherlands teammates. He'd be going by himself. Um, there is so much interesting reading about just the the Netherlands team building their te- just the way their uh, personalities just don't ever really come together for uh, a single cause. A lot of personalities. Um, I think it's kind of a it's a little bit of a Dutch stereotype that they are very independent um, and can be sometimes very stubborn. And if you read about some of the stuff that goes on with the Dutch soccer team. Um, it, it kind of shows a little bit. I think there's a little bit of racial tension as well. So that Dutch team can't beat Czechoslovakia. And there was one other little piece that I think is maybe a harbinger of just what the next events and what the next tournaments are going to be like. Obviously, Czechoslovakia being a surprise winner. Both you and I know that the Euros seem to um, generate some surprise winners. The yeah. Denmark winning in 1992 when they were kind of invited last minute to play. Greece winning in 2004 completely out of nowhere. Um, so Czechoslovakia winning kind of is a, is starts that trend a little bit. And then another team that kind of scratched the surface as far as maybe breaking into European football was Wales in 76. Um, they were they made the quarterfinals, which for Wales is a big deal. It's a very small country. And they didn't really have a great um, first match against Yugoslavia um, and ended up going down 2 nothing in that first match and couldn't really battle back. But some interesting couple little things from that, from the second leg. So in the second leg, the East German referee who was, who was doing the Wales match refused to start the game 
until the East German flag was flown over the stadium. Wow. Um, he, uh, he gave a, a penalty to Yugoslavia uh, that was kind of a questionable call, and they were down 3 nothing in that second leg uh, on aggregate, and it was pretty much kind of they were done and dusted from there. But the other interesting piece was a Welsh official was the uh, Th- Clive Thomas was the was the referee for the semifinal between Czechoslovakia and the Netherlands. He had to send off a couple players. He almost called the match because the weather was so bad and the field was so bad. Um, and he did a lot of he he kind of talked about how poor the Dutch were as far as how they treated him and how kind of entitled they seemed. Um, he, he said a couple things. It rained the whole day before. It rained the day of the game. Holland had no chance of playing their ideal game of total football. I had the impression as the second half wore on that the Dutch thought they were bigger than the game and that they were bigger than you. They could do what they liked. That, was my game. that wasn't my game of football. Johan Cruyff was one of the worst, but then he always had been. You had to nail him right at the very beginning because if he knew that he had control of you, then you had had it. I saw too many matches where Cruyff had control of referees. You don't, ex- you don't expect players of that caliber to act like they did. So he had some kind of strong words about the about the Dutch, but kind of two little bits of, of Welsh football infusing itself, which does not happen all that often. And uh, but they had quite the run in two thousand in two thousand sixteen with that with that team. I think they made the semifinals. Um, so that was a that was just a little bit of extra extra history. In the final, we also have the birth of a very popular penalty, um, a, a, a way of taking a penalty. So the Penenka Both, which I'm sure you're familiar with, yes, um, was actually used by a fellow named Penenka of Czechoslovakia as the game-clinching penalty kick in the penalty shootout against West Germany in the final of, of Euro 76. So Becken, Beckenbauer is waiting in the wings to take the fifth penalty kick. And Panenka steps up knowing if he makes it, Beckenbauer gets no shot at continuing the penalty kick shootout. And Panenka goes up and he chips the ball after running, taking a big, long run. No one had ever seen anything like this before. Uh, and he chipped the ball right down the middle uh, very, very softly. Goalie goes diving, has no chance. Ball rolls in, and uh, the Panenka is born, which I thought was kind of a cool little bit of history. Like, to take to take that kick in that way, in that situation, No, it's it's so good. Yeah, so, so. I, it's, it's, it's just... Like looking at the comments uh, of that goal on, on YouTube, um, there's one comment. If you scroll down enough, uh, it said, "It said balls of steel invented in '76," <laughs> um, which is just it's that's the only way to describe it. Like you look at that goal and and uh, you hear you hear the crowd not really believe what they just saw for a second. Um, yeah, they they. They're stunned, so they're they're celebrating that the ball has gone in. But then they almost realize, oh wait, that ball went in in a really different way that we haven't seen before. Um, so it was it kind of, you know, if we're gonna stick with this ugly baby analogy, that's like 
that moment right there is when like the baby's like finally walking around and like talking a little bit. <laughs> you know, it's like first yeah. steps. Right, first steps. You know, no, none of that like holding onto a, to a couch or holding onto a wall. It's like clear steps walking around. Um, but uh, yeah, it's a great goal, man. I I I love it. Um, and uh, I, you know, just ever since it's it's become a, a point of a point of like stamping your your mark in in the squad, taking a penalty like like that. Yeah, it's it's. I read somewhere. I don't know. I don't know where specifically I read it, but in my reading about the kick and interview with Panenka, he said that he often at the end of practice would him and the goalie would have a like a penalty kind of showdown, and that's when he started to play around with the with that kick. But he also had other ways of taking penalties, and he had basically he said he gained he gained a little bit of weight because he bet he would bet food and usually like ice cream. I think it was some sort of high calorie, like dessert that, you know, the winner would buy the other one an ice cream. Basically it was kind of the, the gist. And he said, he just, he started to dominate the goalie because he had this Panenka. And then he also had, he was a great free kick taker, um, apparently as well. And so he was like, me and the goalie would have these battles and it was pretty even at first. And then I just started winning after every practice and I would get an ice cream and he'd have to buy it for me. And I put on a little bit of weight because of this Paninka, <laughs> which I thought was pretty funny. So, so yeah, that's uh that's 76 and then 80, we're going to do an entire, we'll do an entire pod on, we'll do a little bit of a deep dive because that is, that is the next step. That might be, that might be like, you know, going off to preschool both if you want to continue the analogy yeah. um, because they expand the tournament to eight teams from four um, and, and it just, it, you know, it's night, it's the eighties. We get just a little bit more coverage. Um, we get some more games to talk about, uh, some more, you know, more up our alley of just of what we already know as far as background. And we can do a little bit of digging and, and some research and, and, uh, and talking about just a little bit of the tournament, some of the historical context, picking out some matches we liked. Um, and I think you said it earlier I think the Euros has also that interesting just it's it's political, but there's also it's also feels a little bit tribal. And, you know, you've got wars that were fought in Europe between all of these countries and then suddenly they're tossed on a field and they're playing each other. Um, and I think that's always makes it a little bit more interesting than than the World Cup when you get those dynamics between you know, Germany and England or, uh, France and Germany and all those, all those countries that, that fought two world wars on both sides. So, but you said you had a 1960 piece you wanted to, you wanted to wrap this all up with. Yeah. Yeah. Um, just those, uh, I kind of, I found this like, randomly and, you know, I think, um, I encourage anybody to, to dig as deep as they can into all, all of the different, um, storylines that are that are tangential and straight up running through uh this this narrative that is that is um the european championship um so here's the 60s and here's kind of how how cool this whole thing is um so sean we're, we, we still get our taste and our, our fix of um what do you call those uh those random stories that that just make um soccer soccer uh final winner so this is this is the 60s the soviet union won 
final winner, Victor Ponende, oh man, Ponedelix, uh, surname means Monday in Russian. So however you say Monday in Russian, this is this guy's name. The game kicked off at 10 o'clock on Sunday, Moscow time, and did not conclude until just after midnight. My surname was a dream for headline writers. Recalled Ponendelik. There we go, that's better. Um, after winning this tournament, uh, Soviet Union players each received $200 in prize money for winning the, the Euro. That's not a lot at all. It's not a lot uh, at all. <laughs> uh, just just a, little, a little bit of mastery there. Um, and they were given uh, a reception at the Eiffel Tower um, where this this player, uh, we'll call him Victor Monday, um, he, he remembers meeting Real Madrid president at the time, Santiago Bernabeu. So the person who the stadium is named after <laughs> is president of Real Madrid. And he just screams... He just screams European Super League. So I think it's in their DNA um, when you compare, compare him to Florentino <laughs> Perez. Uh, so Victor Monday goes on and, and he recalls, and I quote, he was ready to buy half of our squad with no hesitation. Yep. We avoided conversation. <laughs> so, uh, yeah, European Super League, it runs deep, man. It runs deep, and especially if you're if you're a uh, madrid president you're you're just it's kind of your mo yep so victor yeah. monday is a great that's a great name victor monday it sounds like a like, like a guy that like rocky would fight <laughs> fourth round. yeah yeah or a fic, or like a fictitious quarterback you know yeah or you know what could be good this could be the name of, of this baby <laughs> <laughs> Victor Monday. All right, that's we'll we'll do it. Victor Monday is the uh, is this baby who is currently uh, a toddler, maybe yeah. just started walking due to the panenka, and uh, 1980 will send Victor off to preschool. Nice. Yeah, I like it. <laughs> um, any any last thoughts? We hope this kind of wet people's appetites for the tournament, and maybe just gives you a little sense of where it came from, and the the people involved and the teams involved in the early ones and we're looking forward to kind of spending 45 minutes on one one tournament um next week yeah great stuff i had fun i'm looking forward to the next round yeah all right well thanks both we will uh, we'll touch base and uh, we'll talk 1980 next time thanks everyone for listening uh please do all the rating and reviewing and subscribing and uh and we will see you next time thanks bye, bye.